The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Realizing the Potential of Novel Treatment Intensification Strategies for Metastatic Castration-Sensitive Prostate Cancer. The experts take on key clinical evidence, practical considerations, and best practices for individualized patient-centered care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UDM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening. Welcome to this peer view program entitled Realizing the Potential of Novel Treatment Intensification Strategies for Metastatic Castration-Sensitive Prostate Cancer. I'm Matthew Smith. I'm professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the director of the GU Malignancies Program at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Welcome to all of you in the audience, as well as to those participating in this meeting virtually. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by two outstanding panelists, um, Dr. Sandy Srinivas to my left, and further to my left, Dr. Karim Fazazi. I'm going to begin with a brief introduction uh, and a case to make uh, a very important point about the role of local treatment in patients with de novo uh, MHSPC, and then I'm going to leave the heavy lifting to my colleagues to really talk about exciting new data uh, in, of uh, systemic treatment intensification in this important disease state. So here's the background. Patients with MHSPC have poor clinical outcomes. We know this from vast amounts of prior prospective data. We know that survival is related to the type of presentation, de novo versus recurrent, as well as the location of metastases and ex extent of metastatic disease. There's now clear and compelling level one evidence that intensification of a systemic treatment improves overall survival, but despite that clear and consistent level one evidence for improved OS, the adoption of treatment intensification has been poor. Uh, across the United States and elsewhere. And so we're going to do our very best to change that today uh, to convince you about the importance of intensifying systemic treatment in MHSPC. This is data from uh, the Stampede experience with ADT alone, really making this very clear point that patients with MHSPC have poor clinical outcomes. These are almost 1,000 patients enrolled in Stampede between October 2005 and January 2014. These are the group treated with the control arm of ADT alone. The median overall survival was only 42 months, and strikingly, uh, time to failure defined as PSA progression, local progression, or distant metastases was less than one year. The risk for progression was related to sites of metastatic disease, Patients with soft tissue disease, nodal metastases doing the best. Patients with bone metastases doing worse. And patients with both bone and soft tissue metastases doing the very worst, as you can see from the graph on the right. <clears throat> You've heard this terminology of high and low volume, uh, as well as recurrent and de novo. And this is data from Charted and GetTug15, really making the clear point that these uh, disease stratifications allow us to project a patient's clinical course. So thus, expected median survival ranges from about eight years for patients with recurrent low-volume disease to only about three years for patients with de novo high-volume uh, metastatic disease treated with ADT alone. 
Um, and so this is, um, and then if you look at the in-between groups, if you have recurrent high volume, the median survival is about 4.5 months. Uh, yes. And de novo low volume, uh, 4.5 years, excuse me, and de novo low volume, uh, similarly about the same at 4.5 years. Um, notably, U.S. hospital registry data has told us that about 56% of low-volume MHSPC is recurrent metastatic disease. In other words, recurrent metastatic disease is overrepresented by low-volume, and only about 15% of patients with recurrent metastatic disease um, have high-volume metastases. Uh, but these are things we should be thinking about when you're, when you're meeting your next patient in clinic and considering the role of treatment intensification. This is a summary of most of the data we have from randomized controlled trials uh, looking at overall survival in MHSPC. Uh, and these are the ones that have shown consistent, compelling evidence for improved overall survival. And I've grouped them according to the intervention. So GetHug15 charted in Stampede RMC looked at the addition of docetaxel to ADT and concluded that there's benefit uh, primarily in the high-volume subgroup. Latitude and Stampede RMG looked at, at the addition of abiraterone to ADT, um, noting that there's similar benefits across different risk groups. And then a number of studies have looked at anti-androgens, uh, arches, enzymet, and titan, looking at enzalutamide and apalutamide respectively, again, showing consistent OS benefits across different risk groups. And we now have data from the triplet trials that Dr. Fazazi will describe in, in his presentation with Aerosens and PEACE-1, showing that triplets of ADT, docetaxel, and either darolutamide or abiraterone uh, improve survival compared to ADT and docetaxel alone. So I'm going to leave the heavy lifting in describing all of these really elegant studies of systemic therapy to my colleagues, and I'm going to focus on the issue that we shouldn't overlook, and that is the role of radiation, prostate radiation to patients with de novo metastatic disease, because we have evidence from Stampede Arm H that uh, the addition of radiate, prostate radiation to ADT uh, improves survival, at least in the low-volume subgroup of patients with de novo metastatic disease. But there has been poor adoption of intensification of systemic treatment in this important disease state in a population-based study of men uh, in the US, for example, with de novo MHSPC, only about 12.7% of patients receive intensified systemic treatment. You might argue that this was now a few years ago when we didn't have the vast evidence that we currently have, but this was at a time where there was at least evidence for uh, docetaxel and abiraterone. And another analysis from the Veterans Administration claims data reported that most patients with MHSPC who initiated treatment between 2014 and 2018 uh, were treated with ADT alone. And if you leave the meeting with only one message today, it's really that ADT alone is insufficient for nearly all patients with MHSPC. So here's the data supporting the role of prostate radiation in de novo MHSPC. This is from the Stampede trial showing that at least in the low-volume subgroup, there's an overall survival benefit for prostate radiation. Uh, in the high-volume subgroup, uh, there was no observed OS benefit. Maybe it intuitively makes sense, right? If most of the disease is outside the prostate, uh, then radiating the prostate may have less or no role, whereas in patients where a substantial amount of the cancer is in the prostate, with only low-volume metastatic disease, you might anticipate an OS benefit. 
A meta-analysis has also been performed, driven mostly by that same stampede data, but also adding in data from HORAD, uh, showing a significant OS benefit in patients with low-volume MHSPC. The hazard ratio was 0.73, and there was a 7% improvement in three-year overall survival from 70% to 77%. Notably, the magnitude of that benefit is approaching the magnitude of benefit or similar to the magnitude of benefit that we see by intensification of systemic treatment as sort of one measure of thinking about um, how meaningful that can be for that selected group of patients. So I'd like to now present the first case, and many or all of you will already have uh, answered this, uh, uh, this question, this case, uh, in the pre-meeting uh, pre materials. This is a, and by the way, I, I developed these cases, when I say developed, they're actually all real cases from my practice. So if there's wrinkles in the cases or things that might seem unusual, it's just because they're actually real patients, not hypothetical patients. So this is a 56-year-old man with a PSA of 30 um, that led to prostate biopsy showing its extensive high-grade disease with the Gleason 5 plus 4, 4 plus 5, and 4 plus 4. Prostate MRI reported a confluent pyreds 5 lesion throughout the left peripheral zone, extending from the apex to the base, and a probable metastasis in his right iliac bone. He had a bone scan that reported uptake in that same area consistent with the bone mat in his right iliac bone. He then had a PSMA PET CT uh, that sort of confirmed that metastasis uh, in his pelvis as well as also identified a second bone metastasis in his cervical spine. So Dr. Srinivas, what do you think of how our audience did and how, and how think, might you manage the same case? I think they did pretty well. You know, I think the message here, two messages that I think were very clear that needed to come out was uh, ADT by itself is not adequate and we need ADT intensification for all patients with me uh, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, that's number one and with the uh, Stampede and the HORAD, I think it's, uh, it's clear that patients with low volume disease do well with radiation. I would actually pick the one with metastatic directed therapy as well you know, there is, uh, we need there are clinical trials that are ongoing but I think with the use of um, PSMA imaging, we are identifying these small sites of disease. So oligometastatic disease with one to three sites of METs uh, radiating the prostate and using your SBRT to radiate these sites of metastasis, especially in a young guy who's 56, is very tempting. We don't know about whether there's overall survival, but certainly it will delay his time to his next therapy. Kareem, what do you think? How would you manage this patient? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would pretty much agree. Uh, there are several things I would definitely do, and there are several things I would probably discuss or consider in, 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 in this gentleman. Those things I would, I, I, would, uh, I would really recommend would be uh, systemic intensification with an AR pathway inhibitor, uh, also a local radiation directed to the primary based on what you, you said and the stampede data. Th that, that would be uh, very clear. Also, uh, because this is a 56-year-old gentleman with a de novo metastatic disease, I would recommend germline testing 
for BRCA alterations as well as rare alterations. We, we know that we see an excess of those alterations in, in this man. So this is something I would recommend, not necessarily for the patient himself right now, but for his family and perhaps also for later on when, when he will unfortunately very likely progress. Now, the two things I would discuss are, as just, just said by Sandy, the, the OSBRT to the metastasis. Uh, we don't have level one evidence, and we are actually conducting a randomized trial uh, 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 in France and in Europe at the moment. So I, w- I would explain that to, my, to this patient. Uh, I'm, I'm a believer. Uh, I think that SBRT can help this man, but I don't know as a scientist. So I think it's really important to, to get the information and to randomize. I would be also on the fence for the stack cell. I know this is a large volume man. I know that that chart does not, does not necessarily uh, support the use of the stack cell in these men. Although this was a post-hoc uh, subgroup analysis based on a rather small subgroup. But actually, Stampede shows very similar benefit from the stack cell in large volume and high volume men. And actually, is there really a big difference between two and three metastases, or three and four? I'm not totally sure. And the one you showed in the iliac bone is, is rather big, so it might be actually two, who knows. So, and this is a young man who is likely to benefit. So probably right now, I would not use the stack cell routinely, but I would keep it in my mind, and hopefully we'll have more data in the future from uh, Arasens, uh, Peace One, and Zamet in this particular man to try to highlight us. All, all outstanding comments. Uh, and as I said, these are real cases. Um, <laughs> so this is a patient I met fairly recently. I've anonymized a little bit, so you can't actually couldn't possibly identify him from my practice. But uh, the uh, but he started ADT and an AR pathway inhibitor. Uh, in this case, uh, darolutamide, and uh, we're going to decide later about the role of docetaxel. It is under consideration, uh, but he will get, the plan is for him to have uh, radiation to the prostate uh, as well as to both metastases. And again, this is a real case, so it has its own wrinkles, like the met in the pelvis is unequivocal. I think the met in the cervical spine is real. We're gonna get an MRI of that um, to be sure about that before we go ahead and radiate that site, because there's potentially a little more toxicity uh, there uh, to radiating a cervical spine. Uh, and the, your other comments about uh, germline testing are spot on, and, and that is uh, underway as well. So thank you for the excellent discussion. Um, Sandy, did you have something you wanted? Yeah, I was just going to uh, see if you would comment on, in general, local therapy and whether uh, ra- ra- this patient had, uh, yeah, whether uh, what the role of surgery would be. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fine question. So in our practice, I'd say that's rarely done. Uh, I can't say it's wrong. Uh, and I think in some ways, perhaps medical oncologists above all make too much drama out of the surgery versus radiation thing. Uh, the patient needs local control. Um, in, when we've done that, uh, it's tended to be similar setting of a young patient with bad disease, but not with bone metastases. Uh, or not the need for uh, metastasis-directed therapy. Karim, what do you think about surgery? We, we, we do similar. Um, 
I know there's an ongoing randomized trials here in the US testing Swap the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't like the control arm without radiation therapy, I have to say. Um, given that we have an overall survival benefit shown in Stampede. We don't routinely operate on these men um, at my center unless there are symptoms that need to be controlled by the surgery. So SWOG-1802 does love not just low volume, it's all patients. And I think to Kareem's point, there is a bias, you know, a referral, especially since we have overall survival for low volume. We have had that open, and much of our referrals have been for patients with high volume disease. They get randomized to either some therapy or none, and if they get randomized to an intervention arm, they can choose between radiation and surgery. And I do like, appreciate that, and Karim, I like your point. There are, there are patients, they're not all that common, but who just really need definitive local control and surgery can't play a role in these poor patients who present with obstructive voiding symptoms, catheter dependent, prostodynia. Uh, and so it really, there are patients who really do benefit from that. Um, fortunately, it's not all that common, but that is a setting where we have selectively done surgery in patients with metastatic disease. All right, so we're going to move on to the second case. Um, we're not going to ask for your votes right now. We're going to come back to it after Sandy's presentation. Um, and this one has its own special features. This is a patient who had a prostatectomy in 2018. Pathology showed PT3A and 0, Gleason 4 plus 3 with tertiary pattern 5. He had negative surgical margins. Then uh, a couple years later had a rising PSA, negative imaging, and he had combined modality salvage therapy with radiation to the prostate bed with short-term ADT. Uh, and then in November 2021, he had a briskly rising PSA, now 3.3, conventional imaging with bone scan and CT reported no detectable metastatic disease. And then in January 2022, PSA was 8.6, and by that time, PSMA PET-CT had become available at our center, uh, and he underwent imaging with that. Uh, and now, just again, two months after having negative conventional imaging, now has multiple sites of metastatic disease involving the right scapula, eighth rib, fourth and seventh ribs, T5 vertebral body, T8, and bilateral iliac bones. And I've just shown you know, one of the representative lesions with a yellow arrow there, pretty unmistakable, um, beautiful PET CT imaging. And we're going to come back to that case um, after Sandy's presentation. Good. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, so, so much has changed in prostate cancer. Today at the breast session, uh, there was a standing ovation for the uh, use of the um, HER2-directed therapy for women with low HER2. And I think prostate cancer in some ways follow breast cancer. And we used to have just ADT as the only choice for patients with hormone-sensitive disease, and now if you look at NCCN guidelines, we clearly have multiple options, all category one, so there are clearly choices 
that we can make based on patient characteristics, based on patient preference, and based on the trial data. So let me just start off with where we were back in 2015. Really, ADT used to be the standard, and it was fairly straightforward. And then the whole idea of bringing in chemotherapy from the CRPC space, where docetaxel was first tested and shown to have a modest benefit, was really brought into the front line and incorporating that along with ADT. So here are two large trials. The first one was the Charter trial, which was an... Um, it was a cooperative group-run trial here in the U.S. Patients were randomized to either ADT alone or ADT plus six cycles of docetaxel. And really, the endpoint was looking at OS and radiographic progression-free survival. Chartered was one of the first trials that really highlighted this uh, definition of volume of disease. So I just want to, for the rest of our talk for today, just define what uh, high volume is. They defined it as four or more uh, bone mets, with one being outside the axial skeleton or the presence of visceral metastasis. That defined as high volume. So in this, you can see that patients who were randomized to the docetaxel arm had a 13-month improvement in overall survival. I'm not showing you the high volume here, but for patients with high volume, that magnitude of benefit was even higher with a 17-month improvement in OS. So Stampede is really an, uh, a, a remarkable design, a multi-arm, multi-staged trial design where multiple arms are added to the standard of care. So you can see that the Stampede trial, again, comparing ADT versus ADT plus docetaxel, had an improvement in overall survival of about 10 months. The hazard ratio on the Stampede trial was 0.82, and on the uh, Charter trial was 0.61. So that was chemotherapy sort of at that point. After leaving that ASCO presentation, I went back and I was offering my patients ADT with docetaxel. In parallel, there were these two trials that came out the following year. In fact, Kareem presented the uh, Latitude trial looking at Abiraterone, which again, similar to docetaxel, was approved in the uh, refractory CRPC space and then moved up in earlier lines and eventually made it to metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. Latitude did have high-risk population. These are all patients with visceral mets or had a high Gleason score. And you can see a remarkable difference in overall survival by adding ABI to ADT. The hazard ratio, again, 0.62. And similarly, almost that same year, the Stampede um, this was ARM-G looking at ABI plus ADT, and you can see it's almost identical hazard ratio. So two large, well-designed trials, again, giving us a second option now that for those patients who don't want to have chemotherapy, the benefit of ABI to ADT offers these men um, an improvement in overall survival. You can see it's almost like a 35% risk of uh, less risk of death by getting the uh, patients to go on this. These two trials, now we have longer follow-up, and you can see that with time, the hazard ratio is holding up. So clearly, these are drugs that are giving these men long-term benefit. 
Then comes, as we had this uh, discussion now, that you have uh, docetaxel, you have Abby, what would be the best choice for patients? The Stampede, as you can see, because it had these multiple arms, there was a paper looking at arm C, which, as I just said, was with docetaxel, and arm G was with Abby, a comparison between these two arms, because this was really a practical question that was there in front of our patient as to whether we do docetaxel or whether we do Abby. So this was a comparison looking at these two, and essentially there was no difference in overall survival. So you could choose either one of this. And around that time, it was really um, they, these other endpoints, uh, such as metastatic PFS, symptomatic skeletal-related events, there was no difference. There was a failure-free survival favoring uh, Abby as well as uh, PFS, but essentially no difference in OS. So I think practitioners and patients started having this discussion about an IV versus an oral drug, getting six cycles of dosi versus staying on an oral uh, uh, on Abbey, there are reimbursement issues, but truly this was a choice that patients and providers could decide between these two. As we were getting settled with just the idea of chemotherapy and Abbey, then came our next uh, wave of clinical trials, really, looking at um, our androgen receptor-blocking drugs, such as apalutamide in the Titan study, and I'm going to show you the uh, trials with enzalutamide as well. So this was a phase three uh, trial with a large number of patients. I mean, it's remarkable that we now have close to nine trials with greater than 1,000 patients in each of these studies completed, showing um, a, a good data supporting the use of these drugs over uh, ADT alone. So this trial, again, took men who were uh, newly diagnosed. They did have a mix of patients with de novo as well as um, patients who had had prior therapy. There were patients with low volume, high volume. There was a mix of these patients. The patients were randomized to either ADT plus placebo or ADT plus apalutamide, and the primary endpoint was looking at RPFS and OS. Just like the previous trials with chemo and with um, Abby, here again with the addition of apalutamide, there was an improvement in radiographic progression-free survival. You can see the hazard ratio for RPFS was pretty impressive at 0.48 with a statistically significant p-value. And I'll show you up in the next slide the overall survival again, favoring the addition of apalutamide to ADT. You can see that the median survival has not yet been reached for the apalutamide arm. For the placebo arm, it's about 52.2 months. The next trial really we're looking at the other uh, AR inhibitor that's been around for almost a decade now with enzalutamide, bringing it again to the earlier lines of therapy. This is Arches. Similar trial design like Titan, it included patients with uh, low volume as well as high volume. There were patients now because 
uh, docetaxel had been studied and had become a standard, there were some patients who had had prior docetaxel. So you can start seeing the uh, number of patients getting dosy in these trials slowly increasing. It's about uh, 15 to 18%. So this is a randomized trial to enzalutamide versus placebo. Similar endpoints looking at uh, RPFS and OS. It's remarkable how these slides, uh, how these trials all have a similar magnitude of benefit. Again, the hazard ratio for this trial, um, this is RPFS, a hazard ratio of 0.39, and an overall survival, again, favoring enzalutamide. There's almost a 14% difference between the two arms in terms of the percent uh, change in OS. Again, hazard ratio, if you think about these drugs, all of them have a similar hazard ratio around 0.6, favoring the addition of drug X over ADT. And then finally, the last trial that was uh, run by the group in Australia, the Enzymet trial. This is a trial looking at um, slightly different design because if you look at the standard arm here, it's ADT plus our standard non-steroidal anti-androgen, which could have been bicalutamide, flutamide, or nilutamide as the comparator arm. And the experimental arm included ADT plus enzalutamide. Slight difference of this trial compared to the uh, arches. Here, there were a much larger number of patients who had received docetaxel as part of standard of care. So you can look at the stratification, again, volume, high versus low, whether they had planned docetaxel or not. And then the primary endpoint of this trial was looking at overall survival. So here is a trial showing that there was improvement in overall survival with the addition of enzalutamide to um, ADT. Again, the hazard ratio, again, the similar 0 0.67 uh, favoring overall survival. At this meeting, there was an update with the uh, Enzymet trial, and I think I'll have Kareem talk about it in his section. So I'll let Matt talk about the uh, case and maybe how people poll on the results next. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Sandy. The, um, so we're going to move on to the case. Thanks to the audience, both in person and virtually, for sending in questions. Please continue to do so. I'll try to address some of these uh, in the discussion of this case and then at the end uh, with Q&A. So again, this is our 74-year-old patient with recurrent MHSPC. He's undergone prostatectomy and salvage radiation therapy. He had negative imaging for rising PSA in November 2021. Uh, and then just a couple months later, had a PSMA PET CT shown here with multiple sites of metastatic disease. So let me try to help. I, I think this case raises a number of really practical issues, including the issue of how do we interpret PSMA PET imaging, uh, particularly in a patient who had recent negative conventional imaging. So Karim, how would you classify this patient or can you classify this patient with our standard terminology? Right, I, I assume that the, the conventional imaging was, was normal, even the CT um, component of a PSMA PET? Yeah, so let me clarify. So in November, this is a real case, November he had you know, rising PSA, bone scan and CT, 
flat no, negative, just read as negative. When his, he had a PSMA PET two months later, and, the, and as you know, I didn't, may not have said it, but with the knowledge of the, of the PSMA PET imaging, they then said there were sclerotic lesions at those anatomic sites. Um, so, so, you know, but I, I'm not sure they would have called that had they not had sure. the PSMA PET imaging, which is sort of the contemporary dilemma that we face. But, so knowing that, how would you classify this patient or what uh, else might you like to know if it was uh, available? I, I would actually you know, think that this is a quite concordant case. This gentleman obviously has a bad cancer, high glycine score, is progressing rapidly by PSA, and the PSMA PET, as you just dis described it to us, actually shows not only avidity for PSMA, but also a lesion that is basically very likely you know, to look like a, a metastasis on the, on the CT compartment. So, so I think I, I, I probably don't have any doubt uh, in this gentleman that unfortunately he has metastasis. So I would feel comfortable calling him a man with metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, he received, I believe, a short course of ADT a year ago or something. So yeah, a couple, uh, two years earlier, uh, one, right. a total of six months of ADT. Right. So, so, so we're probably missing his testosterone level, but I assume it's, it's in the normal value it range is. now? Okay. So, so I, I would simply call this gentleman a man with metastatic castration-sensitive disease uh, with recurrence from a local primary, and I would agree with uh, most of you guys voting and supporting ADT plus an AR pathway inhibitor. Um, discussion would be indeed whether those men receive or need to receive endostaxel chemotherapy. 74-year-old, you need to be cautious with chemotherapy. I, I don't know exactly how is clinically, whether it's a bit frail or not. I mean, those are questions we need to, to answer. And, uh, and again, question about radiation needs to be, to be addressed. Um. Yeah, so all, all good points. So I'm going to push you a little harder and say, say, would you call him high volume or low volume? Or is, it, or is it just can't be classified because of the nature of the imaging? Well, it's, it's probably too easy because you told me that the CT sh actually shows a sclerotic lesion. Mm -hmm. So... So basically, I would feel comfortable calling him, you know, probably a low volume man because this was a unique lesion, I believe. But so he had actually, I, I showed one. He actually had about seven or eight. Oh, lesions. sorry. I, I just yeah, saw no, one. The, Okay. In the picture, I only showed oh, one right, because I right. couldn't get them all on the same slice. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Well, you, you, you know, regardless of all the verbiage, low yeah. volume, high volume, I think the benefit should... Uh, how do you say that? The DOP should benefit the patient, simply. Yep. So in any of these cases, if we have evidence showing better outcome with the X treatment, if, if we believe this is low volume or high volume, we should propose those treatments to, to these patients when we are on the fence for the definition. So, um, so here, maybe indeed, if there are seven lesions, I may indeed intensify him with, uh, with a triplet systemic treatment, indeed. Yeah. Sandy, do you agree? I don't know. I have a slightly different take. Uh, I do want to remind uh, my colleagues, as well as the, uh, all of you in the audience, that all of the trials that I showed 
only included patients with conventional imaging. So in some ways, you know, uh, our imaging is ahead of our clinical trial data. I think that's really something to point out. But having said that, clearly this patient has metastatic disease. He has a very rapidly doubling PSA doubling time. So uh, it makes sense that these mets are real, and he has a rising PSA, which is a marker of uh, microscopic disease, but now you have radiographic imaging. So I agree that I would treat him as a metastatic disease. I don't know about high versus low volume. He doesn't have any visceral mets. At least from what you had mentioned, it didn't seem like there was anything outside the axial skeleton. So I don't know. I think if you go by the definition, it feels like it is low volume. And ADT plus um, intensification within uh, hormonal drugs seems like what I would offer this patient. Yeah, I've intentionally tried to be unfair to my colleagues and push them into classifying this in a binary way. I mean, risk is, of course, a continuum. High and low volume are just dichotomous variables, um, and they certainly have an important value in patient selection for clinical trials, but in our daily clinical practice, we need to make more nuanced decisions. So while I've been a little unfair with you in trying to force you into naming it. I think we, we, we would all readily acknowledge that there are going to be subtleties involved. There are some other high-risk features in this patient. He had tertiary pattern 5. He has a rapidly rising PSA. These lesions, although weren't seen two months earlier, they, uh, they, they, were, they did have CT correlates. Um, and the other part is, and, and Karim had mentioned this, is the age and health of the patient. This is guy 74. He's fit. You know, medically fit for chemotherapy, not mentally fit for chemotherapy. He just had a really difficult time accepting this diagnosis, and it was sort of all we could do to get him on systemic treatment. Uh, and he was also had other personal things, including travel to, as many of our patients in the Northeast do, they, we call them snowbirds. They, they leave for the south um, to Florida in the winter, um, and that's what he was doing. So we treated him with uh, ADT and uh, enzalutamide um, rather than abiraterone, partly because of just lesser requirements for, for re return yes. visits to see me uh, during his treatment. Um, and after discussing the nuances uh, about adding a third drug, uh, docetaxel, he elected not to do that. Um, but uh, this, is, this, this case, again, has some nuances, as, as, as many of them do. Um, so, I don't, it's a, it's a good question. I'd say, I don't, I wouldn't, I would have a conversation with him. This isn't someone who I would do any arm twisting to do. If you, if we change the circumstances and make the same patient 56, like my first case, then I would, then I would, then I would really encourage them to do chemotherapy. So there were, the, the, the practical reasons is he wasn't going, he was traveling for much of the time. But the other part is he wasn't, say, prepared to accept. Uh, it was very psychologically challenging for him, the diagnosis and the treatment we'd already proposed. So he was just not willing to consider chemotherapy. And, and I don't think we're in a place to twist his arm to do that. And we're going to hear a lot more about triplet therapy from Karim in a few moments. Um, so we'll get more into, into those issues. But thank you for that. So I'm going to try to ad address a couple questions that we got in um, 
So um, one is um, how has PSMA PET changed how you select therapy plans? I mean, we kind of covered some of this, but are there other ways you think about that, um, Sandy? I mean, I think it is quite challenging because uh, <clears throat> we've been doing PSMA PETs for a long time, even prior to its approval. So we have had many isotopes that have been looked at. So have some experience with it, but it's always a challenge because, again, all of these trials were done with conventional imaging. So are we really making people live longer by treating them sooner? We don't know, but it's very emotionally challenging once you have done the test and you see see all of this, I think it's hard for you as well as the patient not to really act on it. We know a lot more, I think, about PSMA in localized, I mean, in the um, localized setting where, uh, based on trials, it's changed treatment decision, right? So some people have, um, no, who were intended to go through surgery didn't get it done because there were far more wider, widespread disease. I think in the metastatic hormone-sensitive space, there are trials that are needed really to know whether we are going to have the same impact of longevity by starting them now. So, Karim, how do you think about the lead time bias that PSMA PET introduces or just reclassification? So now, now a hypothetical case negative negative conventional imaging or just has PSMA PET CT but now he's got multiple you know 3 to 5 millimeter retroperitoneal nodes high gleason grade from prior prostatectomy rapidly rising PSA but there's no CT correlate would you how would you typically manage such a patient would you manage him as metastatic disease or what other information would you want to have to make that decision I think you, we, I mean, medical judgment sh should play its role, really. Uh, the, in the first case, or the best case, actually, that you just showed, I think everything is, is quite concordant. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a bad glycine score from the beginning. He relapsed rapidly. Uh, at the second relapse, the PSA uh, doubling time was fast. And out of a sudden, of course, the PSMA shows multiple lesions, seven, you said. So there's no, you know, discrepancy. So I think in, in those cases, you, we should probably treat, and again, this is opinion, I recognize that, but we should probably treat this man as almost if the conventional imaging would show similar findings. Probably because if you don't treat them right now, in six months or 12 months from now, actually the bone scan will show that. So, so I think that makes sense. And again, this is opinion. Uh, I, we don't have data. Now, if for any reason there is a discrepancy or something a bit difficult, and you, you, in, this, in this last case you mentioned, if it's lymph node disease only, of course, you need to be more cautious. There are also false positive and false negative with, with PSMA PET. So we just need to do our best to, to, to try to to figure out what we're doing, and uh, especially if another imaging possibility is, is, being, um, is, is available, we should probably do it. Sometimes we can biopsy, and we should not uh, forget that. It, it, it actually can help and tease out you know, those false positive. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you're making your, your medical decision.
Thank you. Zand, I have a quick question for you, and that is, that came from the audience, and that is, is there a role for treatment interruption? So I guess what I'm, the question is <laughs> for you is, we have this information about systemic treatment intensification, but are there patients where you would intensify treatment but then do it intermittently, or are they, are they just, because they have a bad enough prognosis to warrant treatment intensification, is it such that you would not interrupt their treatment? I mean, I think in general, uh, this question about intermittent versus continuous have been done with just plain ADT alone. And in the metastatic setting, really, uh, discontinuation was not non-inferior. So continuous therapy has been our standard. With these new drugs, uh, we, I mean, I think the norm has been just to continue. And unless the patient either has a dramatic response or you have reason to stop because of tolerability issues. Rarely it has, I mean, some of these drugs with Abby, sometimes uh, liver enzymes is an issue. With enzalutamide, sometimes fatigue can be quite uh, an issue. So we attempt at dose reduction, but occasionally uh, stoppage Again, these are all, there's so much patient engagement in all of this that I think it's a shared decision. Based on the data we have, I think that uh, what we would tell patients is to be on continuous therapy. I think all great points. And it it also raises the other point where we need more information is about the role of metastasis-directed therapy, where I think intermittent therapy can become attractive if, if you've been able to radiate all sites, identified sites of disease. For, particularly for patients who have an undetectable PSA nadir, it's certainly tempting to consider discontinuing all of their systemic treatment. So thank you for the great discussion to my panel, and we'll go on to our third case. Uh, this is a 63-year-old man with de novo high-volume MHSPC. He presented with recent onset of diffuse bone pain. Imaging reported extensive bone metastases. Uh, his DRE was abnormal with bilateral palpable abnormalities. PSA was 9.6. Prostate biopsies reported extensive Gleason 4 plus 5. And bone scan, um, shown on the right, shows extensive metastatic disease. It's a super scan with no renal excretion of contrast. And so we're going to come back to that case uh, after Kareem's presentation. Sure. Thank you very much, Matt. So, um, we've learned that indeed we should intensify treatment with at least a second uh, treatment. The question is whether we should do three, maybe four in the future. Let's see what we have. So again, uh, it all started with, uh, and Sandy uh, alluded to that, uh, back in approximately 2015 with Dostaxel, then 2017 Aberatron, and then we had confirmation with other AR-targeted agents such as enzalutamide, apalutamide, and then actually darolutamide. And today, another drug uh, coming from China also reported uh, overall survival improvement in the similar setting of MCSPC. So it's, it's very clear that those agents work and that we should use them in uh, the setting of uh, CSPC. Also today, we saw an updated analysis of uh, Enzamet, and Enzamet again was randomizing standard of care plus or minus enzalutamide. And standard of care could consist in ADT plus um, bicalutamide, but also in some men, uh, dostaxel chemotherapy, and I'll, and I'll come back to that. 
With longer follow-up, the uh, benefit is maintained, as you can see. The hazard ratio is 0.7, so 30% reduction in the risk of death with enzalutamide. Uh, curves separate very uh, nicely. Uh, also, something very important is, is really the debate around low volume and high volume. And actually, my opinion is that we're perhaps making too much of it. Uh, if I'm looking at other cancers, I don't actually really see other cancers where we're thinking so much about the burden of, um, of um, metastasis deposits before making a decision. Uh, maybe kidney cancer because of the local treatments we're using uh, against metastasis. But when it comes to systemic treatments in you know, whatever you like, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, etc., we don't necessarily count the metastasis before we're making a decision. We're trying actually to look at the biology of metastasis, which is much, much more interesting, I think, and insightful. But anyway, people really like to see uh, low volume and, and, and high volume. But again, we, I think we should be more cautious about that, and it's actually probably more a continuum. Uh, having said that, I... Uh, I have to recognize that when it comes to localized treatment of a primary, we now have quite clear evidence, as, as just shown by Matt, that indeed only patients with low volume disease benefit from radiation directed to the primary in terms of overall survival. What we actually don't really know is whether high volume men may benefit in terms of local control of the disease regarding symptoms. Hopefully we'll be able to address that in piece one. Now, regarding systemic treatment and the volume, there, there, again, there's been debate as to whether the stack cell benefit to both high-volume men and low-volume. And actually, it remains an open debate, I think, also because in Chartered, for example, there was a mix uh, between patients with de novo disease and relapse. And actually, a man with oligometastic relapse usually do well. So these men may actually not need the stack cell intensification. While actually oligometastic men, the nervo, don't necessarily do well, as just, just shown. Anyway, regarding the next generation AR-targeted agents, they are obviously active across the board. So you don't necessarily need to count the metastasis to decide whether you should use one of them. And this is true across the board. I, I just provided some example here. Abiratron, apalutamide, and enzalutamide actually provide overall survival benefit, whatever the number of metastasis. So you, you can make it easy for you and for your patient. Uh, Sandy already alluded to, uh, to, to that. Between, again, 2017, when we started to have the first AR data with Abaratron, and last year, before we had the, the first data from the triplet, there was debate as to whether we should use the stack cell chemo or one of these AR agents. And I've tried to summarize here the results between this match, indirect match, I have to say, because those are mostly indirect comparisons. But for progression-free survival, it's quite clear that next-generation AR targeting agents do better as compared to the stack cell chemotherapy. And actually, this is also supported by direct 
um, analyzes direct evidence from Stampede where the patients were directly randomized between abiraterone and dostaxel, and PFS was actually much better with abiraterone. This also was the case for quality of life, and also, and this is something maybe oncologists don't really know, also pain control, symptoms. Some, many of my colleagues, or my oncologist colleagues, think, okay, this poor gentleman is full of metastasis. I should heat strong the, uh, the cancer with chemotherapy. Yes, but actually, when you have a strong oncogenic pathway, an oncogenic addiction, and you have a good weapon to hit it, it usually works against symptoms also. And this is the case in prostate cancer, where the androgen receptor is a very strong oncogenic pathway. And actually in Stampede, when randomizing the Staxalvesus abiraterone, the efficacy against symptoms was greater with abiraterone as compared to what was achieved with the Staxel. So it's not only quality of life, it's the anti-cancer effect. The uh, toxicity profile is usually better with a hormonal agent as compared to the stacks, or at least the immediate toxicity. And I have to recognize that we are basically comparing apples and, and pears here because it's, it's, it's just not the same toxicity. Overall survival, I think the jury is out in the stampede analysis that, that Sandy just showed us because the analysis was performed after just two years of follow-up when most of these men were actually alive. So we, we cannot really tell. And when we're looking at indirect comparison with all the caveats, of course, we have probably you know, 10 trials now, and they all show the same data. And I think Sandy already alluded to that. AR drugs, 35% reduction in the risk of death. Chemo, 20% reduction in the risk of death. So, of course, we're not totally sure this, you know, this, this is a true finding, but when you know, 10 trials are reporting the exact same finding, it probably means that it's a true thing. So I, I do believe that OS is actually better with a next-generation AR inhibitor as compared to, to the stag cell, and I recognize that we don't have direct evidence to say that. Having said that, the cost is in favor of the stag cell, at least in my system, where the stag cell is super cheap, it doesn't cost anything, and the uh, hospital uh, is actually covered by the public system. And of course, we have to, to adapt uh, cost analysis based on all our national systems. So in this match, I would choose an AR drug uh, as opposed to the Staxel, of course, assuming this is available. But we now have, since last year, we have triplet data. So not only the stack cell or an AR agent, but actually both. We first look at this question in piece one. And piece one, I think, is a very pragmatic uh, phase three, academic phase three trial in uh, men with de novo metastatic castration sensitive disease. We're basically asking two questions. Number one, should we use abiraterone on top of standard of care, which was mostly ADT plus the stack cell? Number two, should we keep using radiation therapy when we are intensifying all the uh, systemic treatment? We know that from Stampede with ADT alone. The primary endpoint, the, the, the co-primary endpoints actually were RPFS and overall survival. For the radiation question, don't ask me, 
because I don't know, we haven't analyzed it yet, uh, by your pre-plan, statistical plan, we need to have enough events in the low-volume population before we can start the analysis, hopefully in a year from now. But for the aberration question, we do have the data since last year. And I guess the news are good. Uh, indeed, when adding aberration on top of ADT plus dostaxel, we see a quite tremendous difference in radiographic progression-free survival, medians two years in the control arm and 4.5 years in the experimental arm with aberration. So in other words, you're providing two and a half years of good life to your patients without uh, uh, progression, as the ratio was uh, 0.50, and this is highly significant, obviously. Regarding overall survival, we had to be, we had to be patient last year, uh, but we could report that uh, at ESMO, and, that and this is now published. And again, uh, the news are good with overall survival improvement when three drugs are used instead of two. And this is true in the overall population, as you can see on uh, the left-hand side of the slide. This is even more true when you're looking at uh, the dostaxel population, so patients are receiving ADT plus dostaxel plus or minus aberration. And, and the overall survival also includes some patients who had ADT alone as the standard of care at the beginning of the trial before dostaxel has, has established its role. So I think this was probably, well not probably, it was the first trial to show that three drugs are better than two. What about safety? Because this is all nice, but intensification can come with more side effects. But I think this was also the good news uh, that we had in the trial. Basically, what we found with three drugs was that hypertension was seen more frequently 22% versus 13%, as expected, to be honest. And we also saw an excess in transaminase increase, which is, of course, very well known with aberration, but you know, honestly, nothing really bad. It was pretty much 6% versus 1%. And all the rest was, was really even, especially the toxicity of chemotherapy, was not increased by aberration. Uh, for example, uh, fibronitropenia was exactly uh, the same in incidence, and neuropathy was also uh, totally similar. So this really was a, a good news, because I, I was, of course, afraid of additional uh, toxicity. This is now supported by data uh, presented by Matt at ASCO-GU regarding the Arasans phase 3 trial. And this is probably the purest trial looking at this question of three drugs versus two. And I'm saying that because all these men had actually received actually ADT plus dostaxel as the backbone treatment, and uh, half of them were randomized to receive darolutamide on top of ADT plus dostaxel. Big trial, uh, almost uh, 1,300 men were randomized, all, all of them having uh, MCSPC again, good performance status, PS0 or 1, primary endpoint was overall survival, we don't have RPFS data in our essence. And again, uh, news are good with a very clear overall survival improvement uh, favoring the combination arm with darolutamide, hazard ratio was 0.68, 
So in other words, a 32% reduction in the risk of death. And you can see the, the Kaplan-Meier curves, they separate quite fast, and the more the time, the better uh, the, uh, the, the difference is greater. This came together with uh, uh, key secondary endpoints also favoring uh, the diarrhea arm. For example, time to CRPC. And actually, this is important for patients. Uh, no pa none, none of my patients really like to experience a PSA increase. I mean, it's, it's, it's a biomarker, but it's a terrible biomarker psychologically for patients. They just don't like, and I can understand that, of course, they just don't like to see their PSA rising. Look at this difference. This is really big. And again, indirectly, you're providing good life to your patient because they know their PSA is under control on top of their symptoms and imaging if you do that. Also, symptoms were improved, and you will see here to the right-hand side, time to pain progression, again, favoring the diarrhea arm. What about safety? Similar to what I said for piece one, you just don't want to arm too much your patients with additional uh, toxicity. And as you can see here, or maybe you cannot see it because it's too small and too, too, too many uh, side effects were, were looked at, but actually there is no real difference between the two arms. Uh, if the only small uh, and tiny uh, and differences that we, we could showed were uh, included hypertension, uh, 6% versus 3, um, and, it's, and, and also transaminase increase, which is quite rare, approximately 3% versus 1 or 2, but all the rest is really even. And darulutamide is, is really well tolerated. We, this is what we found uh, already in, uh, in a previous randomized trials in M0 CRPC men, and this is now uh, confirmed in, in a recent for, for these men. So again, that's great news. And we don't, don't uh, really seem to see any drug-drug interaction with uh, those tax cell or other agents. So uh, at this uh, ASCO, you will see more data regarding Erasmus. Uh, for example, PSA response was uh, uh, assessed and analyzed, and actually the correlation between response and overall survival uh, has been uh, studied by Dr. Saad and colleagues. Uh, clearly, the, the magnitude of response is greater in men receiving darolutamide in the trial. And, uh, also, and again, because this is not new, there is evidence that PSA value, say, at six to eight months, predicts future uh, outcomes for these men. Very clearly, you, you see here 24 weeks data and also 36 weeks data has a ratio is pretty much 0.4 uh, for an detectable PSA. This is not only important for you as physician, uh, because I guess we're all happy when we see a patient with an intactable PSA, say at six months or so, because we know this is predicting a good outcome for this particular gentleman. But it could be also important for future research, because it provides us potentially a, uh, situations where we may de-escalate treatment for patients responding tremendously, of course in the context of clinical research, and on the other hand, in patients with detectable PSA at six to eight months, we may actually further intensify those men 
with, I don't know, PSMA targeting, um, drug, I mean, PRPOP inhibitors, wh whatever. But, you know, we know that these men with detectable PSA at this time don't do well. So it's probably a, a, a right time to uh, intervene only. Again, we don't have evidence for that. We just saw also today the updated analysis of Enzameta, as I just said, and this is the uh, uh, sub-analysis that was provided uh, earlier this morning. I won't go into too much detail because actually I, f I think there were too many uh, sub-analyses shown today. But I think what was clear was that uh, metastatic synchronous disease treated with dostaxel uh, seemed to benefit from uh, additional enzalutamide. And this again uh, supports what was found in piece one. We, 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 we don't have this analysis yet in a recent, hopefully we, we will do that. Uh, so this will be uh, interesting. And this is probably supporting the case of a triplet intensification, at least in these men well, who have de novo uh, metastatic disease and who are fit enough, of course, to receive the, the Staxal chemotherapy. So, my take-home points for today uh, are as follows. For men with de novo disease and a high volume who are fit for the Staxal chemotherapy and willing to receive chemotherapy, we probably should recommend ADT plus Staxal plus an AR drug either abiratron prednisone or darolutamide, assuming this is approved, or maybe uh, enzalutamide based on what we've heard today. For men who are unfit for the stack cell, by default, we should probably go for ADT plus one of these NHTs. Now, in men with de novo and low volume, I would say at least ADT plus an NHT plus radiation directed to the primary should be our standard of care at the moment. And we may actually discuss triplet therapy on a one-by-one -one basis, especially in young patients who are fit, obviously, for chemotherapy and who have bone disease. Again, what is really the difference between two or three metastases and maybe four or five? I'm not sure, So, especially if it's a big one. Those are potentially uh, scenarios where I would consider discussing with a patient triplet therapy with the stack cell. Regarding patients with a relapse, either low volume or high volume, probably ADT plus an NHT is the current standard of care. Having said that, I recognize that we sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes are facing patients who, who are very frail or very elderly, a 90-year-old guy, might not be a good candidate for intensification. So again, in these men, maybe by default, we should keep using ADT alone, but this is a, a small subgroup of men. Most of them should probably get intensification. And as I just said, there is still room for better treatments and perhaps even further intensification. PSMA targeting should probably be uh, studied and is actually studied in the setting, and I think data will be welcome. We need to, to see whether we can improve patient's outcome, but also uh, we should make sure we're not arming patients. So please don't do that outside a clinical trial. And on the other hand, we may actually de-escalate treatment. Uh, we just spoke about it with, with Matt. In patients responding tremendously 
Do they really need to be exposed uh, continuously to an AR drug? I'm not sure. So this, the, those are things we, we should uh, ideally assess in clinical trials. And finally, I think we spoke about it already, but I, I would like to emphasize that again. We probably need to use germline genetic testing in men with metastatic disease. And I'm saying that because there is clear evidence that the uh, incidence of BRCA alteration, germline alteration in these men, is higher as compared to the general population, and actually higher as well as compared to uh, localized disease. So uh, this is actually my practice, um, actually recommending germline testing in these men. For somatic testing, we now have you know, targeted agents with POP inhibitors, probably also immunotherapy for MSI high patients. So those are good reasons to consider uh, somatic testing, but probably this is more for MCRPC. And Matt, I think uh, I have to, to leave you the floor for this gentleman. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for that terrific overview and outstanding comments. So um, let's come back to our case. So this is a 63-year-old man with de novo high-volume MHSPC. PSA was only 9.6. Uh, he had extensive Gleason 4 plus 5, and uh, most importantly, extensive bone metastases as shown on the super scan here. Um, so we had a few really good practical questions uh, just about clinical management. Um, and I'll begin with you, Sandy. says, um, how do you help your patients handle three therapies? Don't they feel overwhelmed? It is. I think, you know, the discussion now for patients with newly diagnosed disease has become quite complicated. You know, uh, first you're breaking this bad news that they have metastatic disease. Then these are men who have normal testosterone, so you're going to have to talk about what it means to get their testosterone down. And on top of that, talk about and uh, the side effects of AR targeting therapy and then uh, chemotherapy side effects as well. So it's one thing about the time and the education that's needed to help these men get comfortable. The second is logistically, it's really a challenge to get all of these approved. You know, for patients coming in, we clearly need time to get authorization for our oral drug, which typically takes at least, if you're lucky, we get it in two weeks. Chemotherapy can be done a little bit sooner, so it's also a lot of lo uh, logistical challenges in trying to get this all outlined. We need help from our um, uh, nursing education team. I mean, patients need a lot of emotional, physical, and financial support to get through this, and it's also what do you do first? So the way I think about it in my clinic is I start with... Um, with an LHRH antagonist. That way you don't need to think about um, the flares that can happen with an LHRH agonist. So I do that for the first month. Get them, if the patient is chemo fit, and I've spoken about chemotherapy, and it's our shared decision that the patient agrees, I start with chemotherapy first, and then put in this authorization to get the oral drug, and when that becomes available, sort of just... Um, stagger it so that it's not all thrown at them on day one. Yeah, so thanks for that. I take a somewhat different approach. I mean, I think the concept is the same. And I, I, when we teach our fellows, I actually say this, when, the, when describing the patient's anxieties or fears, I ask, is that really the patient 
or is that the mirror? Because a lot of the anxiety is ours, right? I mean, and I used, early when we had this early evidence for intensification, I used to consistently tell patients, well, this is what we used to do. We give ADT, but now we have this evidence of intensifying treatment. A patient diagnosed in 2022 doesn't care about how we used to treat prostate cancer five years ago, right? This is their only experience. So I try to make it simpler. And I simply say, you need hormone therapy for a patient like case three. You need hormone that we can all agree every patient, almost every patient with MHSPC should get an AR pathway inhibitor in addition to ADT. So that's their hormone therapy. And some of them, particularly high volume de novo, should get chemotherapy. So I make that the two conversations. You need hormone therapy, and for the high volume patients, there's gonna be, we're gonna have a separate discussion about your chemotherapy, and I take a little different approach than Sandy, and I just start their, AD, start their injectable hormone therapy, their GnRH agonist or antagonist, and prescribe the AR pathway inhibitor on day one. There's no drama about it. So it actually is, I think, easier for patients to accept, and we also heard from Karim that the tolerability profile is actually quite favorable, particularly for darolutamide, arguably for the other drugs as well. So um, generally pretty well tolerated. It is a lot for patients to accept. They're hearing they have a fatal disease. Now they need three therapies. But in a way, it's really hormone therapy plus chemotherapy for some. So I think that makes it simpler. We had another really good question, practical question. And the three of us have kind of a lot of personal experience in, in treating primarily or exclusively prostate cancer. So one is just really, what is the expected PSA profile after starting, say, triplet therapy or doublet therapy? Karim, can you answer that? Like, what should the clinician who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience treating prostate cancer expect to see with the PSA? And how do you, do you use that information to make subsequent management decisions? Well, PSA has its limits, but it's actually a pretty good biomarker, to be honest. Uh, it's not telling everything, especially, for example, in this gentleman who has a quite low PSA as, as compared to the burden of the disease, you know, 9 or 10. Um, we may be cautious on that one. Uh, but generally speaking, PSA is telling us most of the story. So uh, as I said before, for example, assessing PSA at 6 to 8 months is a very strong predictor or, or, or what, about what's next. So I'm not necessarily sharing this information this way to my patient because I don't want, to, uh, uh, unless they have an undetectable one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, but still, this is something that can inform yourself uh, regarding the surveillance process, for example, and how strong you may image uh, this, uh, this gentleman. Um, what else can we say about it? Uh, I think the other yeah. thing I would add, and there's actually data at this meeting, I can't remember from which study it was, Arches. it may have been, Ar yeah, Arches, thank you, where, and this is the same observation that was made in the NMCRPC studies, very important point. Um, w on patients who are on an AR pathway inhibitor, they have radiographic progression at substantially lower PSAs than patients who are on ADT alone. It was quite dramatic in arches. I think radiographic progression occurred at a PSA of about one compared to 14 uh, in patients who are on placebo. So that is worth noting. And it makes some case for a role of you know, imaging um, 
well, I would say at a low threshold, so I will image patients on a, who are on an AR pathway inhibitor for basically any confirmed PSA rise or doubling of PSA, even if it's at a very low value. Um, and some might even extend that further to say there should be, you know, sort of imaging based on the calendar, even in patients with a lower undetectable PSA. Candidly, I don't think there's very many patients who have true PSA negative radiographic progression. It's just that they have radiographic progression at much lower PSAs. I think I would just add, Matt, that this most recent version of NCCN, you know, we actually made a very strong case for um, incorporating imaging and not just rely on PSA alone. Yeah, I think it's a fair point and yeah. supported by the data. The, the subtlety I was trying to make is, in my personal practice, I think it would be very rare to see true radiographic progression with an, at least an undetectable PSA or no PSA progression. Sandy, how do you think about imaging? What, what is your choice for follow-up imaging? Um, do you have a preference for what form of follow-up imaging you do? This came from the, a question from the audience. Well, I think it depends what's available to us, right? So I think you have a choice of your conventional imaging bone scan, CT scan, I think would be the easiest and the cheapest. But now we have tracers such as Axiom and Flucyclovin PET scan, and we have the availability of PSMA as well. Want to think a little bit about being cost conscious as well, about what the value add of those scans would be. So I typically depends on um, what the starting point is. So I don't think every patient with uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer needs a PSMA scan. There would be a place for it. So, but I think I tend to do either a CT bone scan or a uh, flucyclovin PET. Yep, that's fair. So I think that your point is I, I usually stick with the same imaging. So case two, where his disease was really first identified by PSMA PET CT, I would stick with that for follow-up. Case three, unequivocal extensive metastatic disease by conventional bone scan. Um, I would find no need for PSMA PET CT unless you were using it to assess eligibility for uh, PSMA targeted therapy. So I think we have a few concluding things. So um, we've talked a lot about treatment intensification and, and, and as you are all aware, ADT alone has some side effects, uh, many of them listed here. AR pathway inhibitors have side effects, docetaxel. And I think it just, this slide is meant to be a placeholder to remind all of us that we really need to think about survivorship uh, and the practical issues that matter to patients, including their quality of life, um, as we consider intensification. While many of these drugs, they are pathway inhibitors in particular, are generally well tolerated, they do have their risks for side effects, and Karim very nicely described, uh, and Sandy nicely described the issues of hypertension, uh, for example, really across all of those drugs, uh, as well as some additional side effects with specific agents. Um, this is important to consider. Um, We're all, I think, duty-bound to take on these issues of survivorship and to help our patients manage these issues. Um, so look, I recommend uh, in addition to the own teaching you provide, to share reputable resources with patients. Uh, there are a number of great websites out there, Prostate Cancer Conditions Educational Council, PCEC, US 2 Zero, American Cancer Society, Prostate Cancer Foundation. NCCN has great guidelines for clinicians. They also have, uh, for many diseases, including prostate cancer, very useful guidelines for patients. Um, 
So PCEC, for example, uh, has a long reputation of advocating for patients. Um, they provided uh, outreach to patients, to medical professionals, to the media. Their website is listed there, so I can consider looking at that resource uh, among the others, uh, both for your own uses and, and to share with your patients. Um, PCEC, for example, has free resources, um, including one-to-one -one patient navigation and support, educational resources, good resource for trial information for appropriate patients. This also reminds us that there are three medical oncologists here, and many of you in the audience are medical oncologists, but uh, we talked about a lot of things today um, that involve the, the care that goes well beyond the medical oncology. We need our colleagues in radiation oncology to consider uh, treatment of the primary as well as sites of oligometastatic disease, close collaboration with radi radiology, uh, nuclear medicine as we think about um, the role of radiopharmaceuticals in the management of prostate cancer, and of course the critical and central role of urology in the care of our patients. So we have, I think, just a few minutes for questions. The question is, should race be considered, particularly African-American men, as they're at greater risk for prostate cancer and prostate cancer death? Should they be managed differently uh, than their um, non-black counterparts or white counterparts? Um, Sandy, do you have thoughts about that? I mean, I think uh, for sure we need to be focusing more on, um, on trying to recruit African-American men into clinical trials. I think that's a huge endeavor that uh, we should all be doing. That's number one. I'd, I'm not sure about uh, trials specifically for African-American men with AR-targeted drugs, but there have been uh, trials such as Cipolucil uh, T, for instance. There's been some, I mean, we don't use it that much, but it is a life-prolonging therapy. And there was uh, a subset of patients, African-American men, who had a better outcome compared to even Caucasian men. But I'm not aware of specific differences in our trial population about uh, difference in Outcome. Yeah, so while um, black men are disproportionately affected by prostate cancer, they tend to be underrepresented in clinical trials. Um, when it's been, and it, that makes it challenging to look at those subgroups, we did look at it in Aresens, um, res results to be presented, but in, in, in other trials as well. And when it's been looked at with all the caveats of small subgroups, the treatment effects are the same. Um, so I would say that in my practice uh, in Boston, um, we, we certainly consider race, but not as a more, more, I think less as a disease characteristic because the disease characteristics are the disease characteristics, right? You're right, they, black men tend to present with more de novo metastatic disease, higher Gleason's grade, worse prognosis. But it does present some other practical challenges just in patient management because of a long checkered history of uh, the medical community in, in uh, the lives of black men. Uh, we, have, we just have to really work on building trust so that they accept our recommendations. Uh, and I think that's just an important practical part of it. But I'd say in terms of their, we gen in terms of the medical recommendations, uh, tends to be based primarily on their disease characteristics. Kareem, do you have anything to add? Does Taxel needs to be used uh, cautiously due to metabolism differences? And, uh, and I know that many of my colleagues from, from Asia or, or Australia 
uh, and I do actually the same, tend to start the stack cell with a lower dose, at least up front, to avoid the toxicity and strong toxicity in, in this man. Uh, also, there are discrepancies regarding the data, uh, but at least some data supporting that uh, patients from Asia may have had um, more hormonal sensitive diseases as compared to others. But this is not fully established, so we need to, to, to be cautious about that. But regarding uh, m men with, with black skin, we tend to, to treat them the, really the same. Yeah, that's, that's been our approach. And, you know, the, it's more of the cultural issues that are the region specific or very local. So thank you for your thoughtful question and I guess make the further point that what we really should be encouraging uh, is greater uh, and broader clinical trial participation. So that brings us right to the close of our program. Thank you very much to our live audience as well as to the many folks uh, participating virtually. I hope you have a good rest of your evening. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Prostate Conditions Education Council. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UDM 860. This activity has been supported in part by educational grants from Estellas and Pfizer Incorporated, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.